I would remind you before we begin that next Sunday afternoon will be the hymn sing, so you can pick your favorite hymns to sing, and then a time of publicly giving thanks to God. So keep that in mind. Give that some thought for next week. Let's take our Trinity hymn book and turn to number 35, 35 in the Trinity hymn book, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Stay together as we sing. in prayer, asking God to meet with us. Amen. You may be seated. We're in Proverbs 24 this week. For some reason, my laptop will not connect to RBC Lenaway, but I do have it downloaded. 
uh, onto the phone. So I still have my legacy standard <laughs> available. Uh, Proverbs 24 um, begins with a warning to us uh, not to be envious of sinners or against evil men, and we're not to even desire to be with them. This also um, is brought up again in verse 19 and 20, where he says, Do not fret yourself because of evil men, and do not be envious at the wicked, for there shall be no reward to the evil man. The candle of the wicked shall be put out. Interesting that many of the versions... um, Old and new retain the word fret uh, there in verse 19. Do not fret yourself because of evil men, which is kind of surprising to me because the word uh, fret, the bare meaning of it is a a burning, and it has to do with anger. It's a word that's also used uh, in Leviticus regarding uh, leprosy in a garment talks about it being fret inward, and it's talking about it's it's burning a hole uh, into the garment. So I am surprised a little bit that the newer versions keep that word. Maybe it's because they know we're used to it, and the King James is still having its influence. I don't know. Uh, I'd be very interested to hear any of your thoughts about that. Um, Verse 27 is very instructive. By the way, most of uh, chapter 24, they're not standalone verses, but 27 is one of the exceptions. Most of the verses are paired, or even five or six different verses are read as a, as a section, as, as an individual topic. Verse 27 has always in, intrigued me because um, of its uh, applications in the New Covenant, where he says, Solomon to his son, don't forget, sons, whoever. Um, Prepare your work outside and make it fit for yourself in the field and afterward build your house. It's said of Solomon's temple that all of the stones were prepared outside and there was no sound of a hammer or chiseling or uh, axe. No sound of that was heard in the assembling of the temple. And, of course, this is God the Father talking to his son, prepare your work outside. And that's where we are today. We're outside. The hammers and the chisels and the axes are very loud in our ears. We hear, we see and feel the chastening of the Lord or the chiseling of the stones uh, fitting us for the living temple that we that we are, and when he brings us on that great day, there will be no sound of that. No more need for sanctification. Uh, we'll be perfect, and we will be perfectly uh, joined together as one temple. That's glorious. Verse 16 is another uh, verse that uh, maybe you have heard it taken out of context. I, I have, and... It says, a just man falls seven times and rises up again. And I've heard it used in the context of, yeah, well, everybody sins. 
and we get up again as Christians. But it's not talking about uh, falling into sin because the context is verse 15. The context is the message to the wicked man. It says, don't lay wait, wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not spoil his resting place, for a just man falls seven times and rises again. It's talking about falling before enemies, being destroyed uh, financially, uh, reputationally. Um, Often men's lives are uh, destroyed uh, not by thieves waiting against his house, but by men uh, who slander them. Their reputations are destroyed. And uh, that's a theme in the, in the book of Job uh, quite often as well. And then finally, just a uh, word on verse uh, 33 and 34. These are part of a larger context about Uh, being a a sluggard. He says, uh, verse 30, it begins about going to buy the field of the the sluggard. And I looked at verse 34, and it sounded familiar, and it is familiar. It's an exact, 33 and 34 are an exact repeat of chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. So um, that was why... It sounded familiar, but it's just another reminder to us that we need reminded not to be lazy. That's a temptation that uh, we all uh, face. It's easy, especially uh, in a country where we have so much and it comes so easy. Uh, it's easy to become lazy in our walk uh, with God. So with that, those comments, let's uh, read Proverbs chapter 24. Do not be jealous of evil men, and do not desire to be with them, for their heart meditates on destruction, and their lips talk of mischief. By wisdom a house is built, and by discernment it is firmly established, and by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge strengthens his power. For by guidance you will make war, and in abundance of counselors there is salvation. In this version you have uh, safety in the old King James. uh, Victory is a a common uh, translation of that word. Salvation is a, a word that's often used in national deliverance. And so this is talking about uh, war, and so the nation's uh, national concerns are at stake here and being determined by our uh, counselors. Seven, wisdom is too exalted for an ignorant fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. The gate is where judgment takes place. He is not wise enough to be a judge. One who deliberately thinks to do evil, men will call a schemer. The scheming of folly is sin, or uh, in my memory has the thought of foolishness is sin. It's, it's a sin to even contemplate sin, foolishness. You've already crossed the line when it comes into your mind. That's a terrible predicament, but it needs confessed. If you slack, 
excuse me, I didn't finish the verse 9, <laughs> the scheming of folly is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. If you slack in the day of trouble, your strength is in trouble. Is anyone reading the legacy standard? It's so different from what you're used to. If you faint in the day of adversity, the old King James, your strength is small. But what triggers my, <laughs> intrigues me is that the word is trouble in both places, but it's not exactly the word trouble. It's not exactly the same word. They're related words. And I like the legacy for bringing um, that out. And there's probably a play on sound. You know, one thing that we can't, uh, experience or enjoy is just the sound of the words in, in Hebrew. So if you slack in the day of tsara, your strength is tsar. So it's tsara and tsar are the two related words there. They're actually back to back. Deliver those, verse 11, who are being taken away to death and those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Oh, hold them back. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts understand? Does not he who guards your soul know? And will not he render to every man according to his work? Eat honey, my son, for it is good. Indeed, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is thus for your soul. If you find it, there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the abode of the righteous. Do not destroy his resting place, for a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. But the wicked will stumble in calamity. When your enemy falls, do not be glad. And when he stumbles, do not let your heart rejoice, lest Yahweh see it. And it be evil in his eyes, and turn his anger away from him. Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be jealous of the wicked, for there will be no future for the evil one. The lamp of the wicked will go out, or will be put out. A good companion psalm to that is Asaph's Psalm uh, 73. Remember, he was envious at the wicked until he went to the house of God and saw their end. And that's, uh, again, what we have here. My son, fear Yahweh and the king. Verse 21, do not associate with those who change, for suddenly their disaster will rise. And who knows the upheaval that comes from both of them, that is, God and kings. These also are sayings of the wise, to show partiality in judgment is not good. He who says to the wicked, you are righteous, people will curse him. Nations will be indignant with him. But to those who reprove the wicked, it will be pleasant. And a good blessing will come upon them. He kisses the lips who responds with right words. Establish your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field. And afterward, you shall build your house do not be a witness against your neighbor without cause, nor deceive with your lips. Do not say, as he did to me, so I shall do to him. I will render to the man according to his work. I passed by the field of the sluggard, 
and by the vineyard of the man lacking a heart of wisdom. Behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Nettles have covered its surface, and its stone wall has been torn down. And I beheld, I set my heart upon it, I saw, I received discipline. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as one that travels, literally, and your want like an armed man. Take our Trinity hymn books and turn to number 79. Hymn number 79, Don't Trouble Assail Us. And Dangers of Fright. We end with The Lord Will Provide. Number 79. Let's stand together as we sing. seated. Take your Bibles and our time together this afternoon and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When considering what to consider together in these afternoon services, I decided to come to this section where the Apostle Paul gives some instruction to the believers there at Thessalonica 
about the issue of the return of Jesus Christ. And as he writes about this, there are two concerns that he specifically addresses. The first is the fate of Christians who have died before the return of Christ. And then secondly, there's the issue of the timing of our Lord's return. So it's a section that begins in verse 13 and goes through chapter 5 and verse 11. And so follow this morning, we'll, I mean this afternoon, we'll just consider one of those concerns starting at verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. <coughs> For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive will remain and will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with him, with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So here's the first concern, the first issue that the Apostle Paul addresses as he writes to the believers. And that has to do with those who have fallen asleep. Those who have died. It's interesting that in ancient culture, death is often referred to as a kind of sleep. The word cemetery is derived from a Greek word which means a place to sleep. So the next time you're driving down the road and you pass a cemetery, say to those in the car with you, look at those people sleeping over there and see what their response is. A cemetery is a place to sleep. Among the believers, this was fitting expression of the hope that they cherish. To the Christian, death was falling asleep at the end of a long period of work and anticipating awakening refreshed by a new day. Revelation 14:13 Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they that may rest from their labors for their deeds follow after them. There's coming a day of eternal rest. So if you're wore out, you're tired, if you think I need a break, that day will come when we will rest from our labors. Now from what we can gather, there were some at Thessalonica who were worried about what happens to dead Christians when Christ comes again. 
Their future hope was very much focused upon that great event. They knew that Jesus was going to return in His kingly power and, and usher in a new heaven and a new earth. But the question was, would those who have already died miss out on this great event? What about them? Will they completely miss out on the event and the blessings that accompany it? This was the great concern on the minds of some of the believers there at Thessalonica. And Paul addresses this concern by, by giving us some very helpful instructions concerning this great event. And we shall take up this concern by noticing together four simple statements that Paul gives that will be helpful to these people who were so dear to the Apostle. Four statements about what will take place. And I, w I would just have you notice them with me. First of all, in verse 13, there's a statement of purpose. Paul begins this section by telling us why he's addressing this topic. Why is he writing about the believer who dies before the return of Christ? And his answer is twofold. He's writing about this to inform them. And he's writing about this to encourage them. Again, look at verse 13. I do not want you to be uninformed. He doesn't want them to, to remain in a state of being uninformed. He, he, he traces their anxiety concerning those who have died to their lack of knowledge. They are ignorant on this topic. And as long as they remained ignorant, they would continue to be anxious about what happens to those who have died when Christ comes again. The return of Jesus was not something that the Apostle Paul shied away from. In fact, we won't take time, but, but you can look at chapter 1 and verse 10. Chapter 2 and verse 19, chapter 3 and verse 13. So there was a lot of information given about this topic. But, but Paul doesn't want them to be uninformed. And so he again takes up this topic. When Christ returns, when he ushers in the new order of things, the dead believers won't miss out on this event. They will partake of it. And he tells us how this happens. So he informs them. Secondly, he encourages them. He says, I do not want you to grieve, especially like those who have no hope. Mr. Young in his commentary says this, Death was a prospect people dreaded in Paul's day. 
even as they do in our own. While some Greek philosophers taught that the soul was immortal and that it was released at death from the prison house of its body, death nevertheless remained a frightening unknown to most people. For them, the, the next world was a shadowy, chilly realm to be feared. Only the living had hope. So he says, I, I, want, I want you to calm down. I don't want you to be anxious. And I, I, I do not want you to grieve. To grieve like those who have no hope. To, to grieve like those who are unsettled by this topic of death. I, I do not want you to live that way. But I want you to be calm. I want you to know, Paul says, that God has a plan, that God will take care of this. You need to trust Him. So don't grieve like everyone else. But be encouraged. God is in control. And even, can I say this? Even apart from the return of Christ, there ought to be that spirit among the people of God. There ought to be a sense in which we so trust God, if I can use our common vernacular, that we don't become unhinged when we don't understand why things are going the way they are. I mean, Paul says here, I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. You of all people ought to have the greatest amount of hope and trust God even when it comes to things that you fully don't understand. So for them it was, what happens to the dead when Christ comes again? For us it may be things like, how in the world did Proposition 3 ever pass? In our society. I mean, who in the world would ever vote to kill babies? And when I woke up Wednesday morning and I read it one, my first thought was, what? This can't be. And then I had to say, you know what? When I went to bed last night, before I knew the results, God was still on the throne. And when I woke up on Wednesday morning, God is still on the throne. It's, it's a little more scary. How far do we have to fall? How bad does it have to get before God brings His judgment or God brings a revival? That's a frightful thought because I don't think we've sunk low enough yet. But at the end of the day, I determined I'm not going to walk around moping because God still is in control. And that's an encouragement. And for the Thessalonians, Paul encouraged them with that reality. Do not grieve as those who have no hope. So, so there is his statement of purpose. Verse 14, we have a statement of fact. A statement of fact. Paul sets down two certain facts 
that he desires the people of God to consider. The death and resurrection of Christ is the first fact. And then the second fact is the reality that God has a plan wherewith he will bring those who have died before us, who have fallen asleep, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep when Christ returns. And so he says, first of all, let's consider this. Do you believe, do you believe in the death and resurrection of Christ? Is that a settled fact in your mind? And you can imagine the Thessalonians as they're hearing this letter read to them. All right. Do we believe in the resurrection? Do, do we believe in the death of Christ? We believe that? Amen. Okay. Then believe this. When Christ comes again, God will send those who have died before us, believers who have died before us, will come with Him in their disembodied spirits and will once again be brought together body and spirit. If you believe in the resurrection, then believe that God one day will bring those who have fallen asleep at His return back to the new heavens and the new earth. Those who have died before us, their spirits are in the very presence of God at this moment. When a man dies, his spirit leads his body, and the believer is then ushered into the presence of God. Oftentimes, the majority of times, when it speaks about what happens to a believer when he dies, it doesn't say a believer dies and goes to heaven. The Bible speaks of the believer dying and going into the presence of God. Remember the thief on the cross? When the thief on the cross pleads for mercy, Christ looks at him and said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. Remember what the Apostle Paul said concerning his own death? I have a, de a desire to depart and be with Christ. So here is a statement of fact. Body and soul will once again be joined together at the return of our Lord. That's the statement of fact. And then we move on to what I call a statement of explanation. A statement of exclamation. We read here starting at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Here we have an outline of the events of the final days of world history. First of all, the Lord will descend from heaven. According to Acts 1 and verse 11, after the resurrection of Christ, He ascended to to be seated at the right hand of God in heaven. And He will return to earth from there, descending in the same way the disciples saw Him leave. His coming will be personal. It will be the Lord Himself that comes. His coming will be personal. His coming will be bodily. And His coming will be visible. He will appear. Revelation 1.7, Behold, He comes with clouds, and every eye will see Him. When He comes, His coming will be marked by a mighty sound, a shout of the archangel, and the trump of God. It will be a colossal eruption. No one will sleep through it. As much as I may speak loudly to wake some of you up, that task isn't always possible. But when Christ comes again and the voice shouts and the trumpets blare, every eye will see Him. I don't even know that I could imagine what that day will be like when He returns. And so the Lord Himself will descend from heaven. Secondly, the dead in Christ shall rise first. This would seem that at this time those who accompanied the Lord on His return are reunited with their bodies, now raised, now glorified. And those, thirdly, who have not tasted death will be caught up together with them. That term caught up, we translate with the idea of the rapture. I'm often asked, do you believe in the rapture? I do believe in the rapture. There will be a day when those who are in the grave will be caught up and we who are alive will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. That word caught up or raptured, it originally means forcibly seized. I mean, what will that be like? Christ descends. The disembodied spirits of the believers descend with Him. The graves open up. Bodies are resurrected. We who are alive are resurrected, forcibly caught up with Him. And fourthly, we will meet the Lord in the air. It's a personal reunion that Paul describes here. The Lord, with His redeemed saints... In their glorified bodies are united. At last he sees his saving work for them in completion. The work is done. 
Oftentimes, when a believer dies, we speak of them as though they have completed the course, as though it's all over. They're now in heaven. No, they're not. That's why the martyrs under the altar are crying out, How long, O Lord? How long? We're waiting for this completion. It's not over with yet. There's more to come. But one day, heaven's groom welcomes his bride into his immediate presence forever. That's the statement of exclamation. And then fourthly, there's a statement of exhortation. A statement of exhortation. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Comfort one another with these words. Paul wants the believers to use this instruction to encourage each other. Encourage each other about those who've already died. Encourage each other with regard to what we have to look forward to. Comfort one another with this hope. May this hope bring you great comfort. This day is coming. When? Well, Paul addresses that starting in verse 1 of chapter 5. And maybe we'll take that up in a couple weeks. But here's what Paul's instruction was for the believers at Thessalonica. What happens to those who've already fallen asleep? And and what will life be like for them? Will they miss out on this event? And Paul says, oh no, look at what's going to happen. Look at what's going to happen. And and as I thought about this text and I thought about us, I wondered how often, how often do, do we think about the return of Christ? How, how often do you give any thought to the fact that Jesus Christ is going to come again? How, how often have you thought about even as Cliff sort of alluded to in the reading this afternoon, to that day when when we are a part of the new heaven and new earth, and there's no more pain, there's no more sawing and hammering and chiseling and everything. It is glory unspeakable. It's a glory that we can't even imagine. The coming of Christ. I grew up in a time, and maybe some of you did too, where this topic was was very prevalent. And I don't know about you, but I remember being in youth group and watching movies that were that were there to try to scare you to no end right, with regard to the return of Christ. But the return of Christ ought to be a glorious thought to we who are believers. What God has planned for us is more than we could ever comprehend or think. But He's promised us that. And we ought to live in eager anticipation of that day. And so let me set before you a couple words of application. First is this. We have in this passage a picture of a believer 
as he dwells here on earth. A picture of how a believer ought to dwell here upon earth. He, he's not to grieve. Now, by that, Paul's not saying, when somebody dies, don't you be sad? What are you talking about? No, I mean, there is legitimate grief and sorrow that comes with death. Death separates us. But I believe what, what Paul is pointing to here isn't, isn't just the idea of sorrow, but, but it's, as I've already mentioned, it's the idea of don't find yourself living in a hopeless condition, stressing out, being unsettled. Don't do that. Paul's point is that we should never have our grief marked by distress and hopelessness. He says previously here that we ought to live quiet lives. Look at verse 11. Make it your ambition to live a quiet life and attend to your own business. What does he mean? Don't talk? All right, now, now, if you know somebody who talks a lot, don't use this verse saying, try living a quiet life. But, but what he's saying is this, you, you, your life should be marked by calmness, but by a settledness. Don't work yourself up into a frenzy. Don't you live like someone who has no hope? Trust in God. And so we're reminded of that. Here in this section of Scripture. Secondly, in this passage, we have a picture of how a believer anticipates death. Death is a reality. It's going to come. I, I told the young people this morning, when, 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 you're, when you're my age and you're sitting around a table with primarily young people who are anywhere from 21, 22 down to 13 or 14, and you talk about death, and I said, and I said to them this morning, as you look around at this table, who do you think might be the next one to taste death? Take a guess. <laughs> but we don't know that. Don't know that. I mean, I, I, if we're going in chronological order, yeah, I'm next, all right? But who knows when any of us are going to be called to death's door. I told the young people this morning, a friend of mine, who we went to the same church when we were in high school, ended up going to the same college. Um, not, not a real close acquaintance, but I knew him. I knew his wife. His wife was in my class, and she was a good friend. And we just saw them last June. My class had a big reunion, 49th class reunion. I know, that's old, but yeah, 49 years. All right. And Greg was there having a good time. They now live out in Minnesota. And a couple of weeks ago, he put a Facebook post on that said something like this. Usually when I put something on Facebook, it's, it's for humor. It's satire. It has to do with politics. And that's true if you knew him. That's usually what it was. But then he said, not this time. And he went on to say, I've not been feeling well for the last couple of weeks. And I finally got into the doctor. And basically his note was, my body is filled with cancer. My liver has cancer. My pancreas has cancer. 
I mean, thankfully, he talked about, but I choose to rejoice because I know my Savior. Within less than two weeks, Greg passed through death's door. Bam. His wife, again, a friend of mine, wrote that she never expected anything like this this quick. The death for the believer is, is not the end. It's, it's, it's a gain. It's to be with my Lord. It's not complete. There's still more to come. But that's how we should look upon death. It means no more suffering. No more labor. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now the full realization of all that won't be known until He comes again. But may we know something of that which the hymn writer said, no fear in life, no fear in death. I pray that we know that. And the third thing I want to draw out of this passage is we have in this passage a picture of the great day that every believer awaits. What a reunion. What a reunion. To be with the Lord forever. Do we share an eager anticipation that the early church had? Does this prospect of meeting the Lord thrill us as it ought? Are we able to echo with the heart cry of the Spirit and the Bride, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Well, those are the things I wanted to share with you. If you thought I was going to give you a timeline or if you thought that I was going to set before you premillennial, postmillennial, I just want you to think about the return of Christ and what it will be like. Because He's coming. He is coming. And I pray that we eagerly are awaiting that day. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank You for the direction, the instruction that we receive from Your Word. Father, we pray that as believers we would not be like those who have no hope, but that we would find our settledness, our rest in You even as we live in an ungodly, wicked world. Father, we, we pray that each one of us might eagerly anticipate the coming of our Lord, that we would long for that day when we shall see Him face to face. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So, Father, we pray that You would take Your Word, the instruction that we receive from it, and do us good. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in closing, take your Trinity hymn books and turn to 21. Hymn 21, God moves in mysterious ways His wonders to perform. 
He plants his footsteps in the seas and rides upon the storm. We got to trust him that he is the one who's in control of all things. Number 21, Trinity Hymn Book. Let's stand together as we sing.